Amen. The 8th century prophet Isaiah foretold to us the coming of the Anointed One, Jesus the Christos, in Hebrew the Messiah, the, the Messiah, the Anointed One. And y'all, what better segue from this series we've been doing on Isaiah and what he taught us about the coming of Jesus than simply to preach a sermon series entitled, Preaching Jesus. And I thought, folks, what more can we preach than Jesus Christ lived, was crucified, dead, buried, resurrected on the third day, and now exalted at the right hand of the Father in heaven. You can't get much better than preaching Jesus. Well, as a result of that, God's led my heart to develop ten different sermons on this very topic. Matter of fact, you'll hear scriptures from Leviticus. You'll hear scriptures from Matthew, from 1 Corinthians, from Mark, from Luke 1. And from the book of Revelation, titles such as the resurrected king, the victorious Lord, the touchable Christ, and the coming king. And each of these sermons that I'm going to preach are on specific events that you will remember from your own personal study. But here's my prayer. My prayer is that the Holy Spirit will reveal to each one of us something that we have never, ever seen before as we studied that section of Scripture. You know how that happens when you're reading the Word and all of a sudden a light bulb comes on and you say, wow, I've never seen that before. That's my prayer. In all these messages, you'll walk out of here on Sunday morning saying, wow, I've never seen that before. I think of Hebrews chapter 3, verse 18. The Lord just made a very incredible statement. It says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And folks, what we're going to do in these next weeks together is simply preach Jesus in his power and in his authority. Wow. The 5,000 had been miraculously fed. Actually, there were 4,000 men and women plus children, according to Matthew chapter 15. Now Jesus had to get through his critics. There was a group of folks, the Sadducees and Pharisees and others, that now began to plot what was going to happen to Jesus that led to his death. Jesus and disciples, the Bible says that after all that took place, that he entered a boat and he came to a place that we refer to as Magdala. It's on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee. He had a brief confrontation with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, according to the first four verses of Matthew chapter 16. And then the Bible says that the disciples left again by boat to the eastern shore of the sea. You remember at Bethsaida, Jesus healed a blind man, according to Mark chapter 8. And then by foot, he and his disciples proceeded northward to Caesarea Philippi, and it was here that Jesus' ministry was going to take a dramatic new creation. Folks, he got away from the crowds to spend some very serious, quality time with these men. The tide had shifted against him. 
Many were against him. He counseled the twelve to be wary of the teaching of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees because he knew what lie ahead of them. But Jesus wanted to ask his disciples a question. He needed to ask his disciples a question. He had been with them two years plus, and he needed to know how they stood on understanding about who Jesus really was. And how they answered that question would, answer, would be the center of the eternal destiny of those 12 men and for you and me today. It would be a question that these 12 could not avoid. They would have to make a response. And you and I today, it's a question that's unavoidable. Every one of you, including this pastor, before you leave here this morning, will once again have to answer this question. And not only us in this room, everybody on this globe. Now let me show you something about Caesarea Philippi that perhaps you may not have seen before. I've got a map to show you, and I want you to see something about this area. Caesarea Philippi, the area of Capernaum, which is right here. You see that word? That's Jesus' home base. That's where he, he spent for those Galilean years of ministry, in the last part of his ministry. Caesarea Philippi is about 25 to 30 miles, about almost due north, give or take. But right here in this mountainous region, but there's something about Caesarea Philippi you need to understand. Caesarea Philippi was the home, yes, of Philip the Tetrarch, but in addition to that being his home, it, yes, it was a quiet spot in the mountains. They could get away, but it, was a, but it was a beautiful and picturesque spot. You look at geography, and it's 1,100 feet above sea level, Near it, and you can look in its background at the snow-capped Mount Hermon. The headwaters of the Jordan River was there, but this city was associated with idol worship and pagan deities. There was a temple built there to the god of nature, Pan. It was the center of that worship. It had once been the center of Baal worship, and at least 14 temples to Baal had been built in the, in the city. Now, in Caesarea Philippi, in this mountainous area, idol carvings of Baal and Pan covered the cliffs of the mountainside. And here is Jesus going there with the twelve men. The city had led the people's worship of idols. They all had their own personal little G-O-D-S. Now Jesus brings the twelve, and they're going to have to answer what better place in the midst of idol worship, in the midst of something apart from Jesus Christ, those 12 men sat along with Jesus and they were about to be confronted with a question that would be unavoidable, yet all around them was a polytheistic society, a belief in many gods. And so with that very background, let's read the scripture. Matthew chapter 16. Here those men are. They're probably in some area in these mountains. They're sitting there. He, Jesus has got them all together. The breeze is blowing between the crevices of the mountains. It's a quiet place. It's blocked most of the sound. And he can really get down the nitty-gritty with these men. They're all sitting together. They have his undivided attention. And trust me, he has theirs. 
In verse 13 of Matthew 16, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, all 12 of them now, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And here was their reply. Well, some of those folks back there in Capernaum say he's John the Baptist. Others says he's Elijah. Still others say Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. But then he says, but you. That word's emphatic. In other words, he's looking at all 12 of them when he says this. He's not looking over their heads. He's not looking under them. He's not looking around him. He's looking them square in the eye like I'm looking you square in the eye. And he says, but who do you? Who do you say that I am? I know this whole world, those old folks over there say it this way. But I, right now, I'm concerned about you 12 men. Because you're going to have to understand what you believe about me because that's going to dictate your eternal destiny. And I want to know, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. There are three things I want to show you about these scriptures, this scripture this morning, and what it means for you and me, and what it says. And here's the first thing. The first thing is this question is a critical question. Jesus came to the region. He asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? I want you to notice something with me. Jesus did not ask his disciples so much who he thought the people thought he was, he said, who do the people, what, say that I am? In other words, what's coming out of their mouths? What do you hear when they get out of church? What do you hear at the grocery store? What do you hear at the market? What do you hear around the kitchen table? Who are these people in this world saying that I am? And folks, when you ask a question like that, it's critical because most of this world talks of Jesus and they saw Jesus then as only a half-truth. They saw him as a great man who was highly esteemed and respected, that he was considered one of the greatest of men. But note this, these professions were untrue. They were dangerous. They were only half-truths and people were deceived and being misled by them. Some thought he was John the Baptist coming back to life. Why? John the Baptist was sent, as the scripture says in Matthew 11, to prepare the way for Jesus the Messiah. Remember what happened to John? He was beheaded by Herod. And Herod Antipas himself claimed that Jesus was John the Baptist that was risen from the dead. Stimulated in part by his conscience. And some say Jesus was not only just John the Baptist that's come back, some said he's the return of the prophet Elijah. Because that's what the Bible in Malachi 4 or 5 said, that before the Messiah comes, Elijah will precede him. He was considered, that is, Elijah to be the greatest prophet and teacher of all time, an incredible man of prayer. And then William Barclay, I'm looking back, points out today that the Jews even expect Elijah to return before the Messiah. And in celebration of the Passover, the Seder meal, which we talked about last week, they always leave a chair vacant for Elijah to occupy. Because Elijah had also been used by God 
to miraculously feed a widow woman and her son in 1 Kings. The people connected Elijah's miracle and Jesus' miracle of feeding the 5,000. So they believed, well, Jesus could be Elijah. Some even believe Jesus was Jeremiah that's returning from the dead. Jeremiah was known to speak boldly, yet he was the crying prophet. He mourned over the hardness of the people's hearts. He mourned because they would not respond to the preaching of God's word. And people saw Jesus pronounce woes and weep. And they wondered, is he Jeremiah? Some people really didn't have an opinion. So they said, well, I just suppose he was a good man. He was a good prophet. One of the better of the prophets. They were professing Jesus Christ to be a great prophet who had been sent for their day and time. He was thought to be one of the great prophets brought back to life or one from whom the spirit of the great prophet himself, as they said, dwelt in. You can see that in Deuteronomy chapter 18. But Jesus says, who do the people say that I am? It's critical. The vast majority of our people in this world will concede the fact that Jesus was a good man and perhaps a good prophet. But so many on this globe right now in the 21st century deny the fact that Jesus Christ is Lord. They think he was a great man, a righteous and martyred man. And he leaves a great example, they say. Some think that Jesus was only a great teacher and a prophet in the 21st century. Still others think that Jesus was only a great man who revealed some very important ways of how man ought to live. And some seem to just think that Jesus was a great man to the Jews. And we can learn a lot by studying his life. But so much of this world will never say that he is more. I want to tell you something about this word say. The word say in the Greek is a little word we pronounce lego. You ought to be able to remember that. It's just like the toys the little kids and my grandson puts together, you know, legos, L-E-G-O. Well, that's the transliteration. That's writing the Greek in English so we can pronounce it. But I tell you what, the word doesn't mean toy. <laughs> the word means to speak. It doesn't mean to babble. It doesn't mean to mumble. It means to speak. It means focused speaking. Now, what do you mean? You're sitting at the dinner table. In just a little while, most of you will be eating lunch somewhere. I bet in our crowd this morning, somebody is going to say at their dinner table or lunch table or whatever you want to call it, pass the salt, please. Now, what does that mean? Duh, pass the salt. It's focused speech. You're asking for a specific thing to happen, and at that moment, you're focused on the salt coming down to your end of the table. That's Lego. Who do the people focusing their speech and their hearts, what's coming out of their mouth, who do they say that I am? And the Lord is asking every one of us in this house that question. Who do you say that Jesus is? What comes out of your mouth at the dinner table? What comes out of your mouth right before you go to bed? What comes out of your mouth when you're driving a car and somebody pulls over in front of you? What comes out of your mouth? Who do you say that this man is? For the most part, even Christians have said, Jesus. 
great man. It's a critical question. But secondly, the title of this message, it's an unavoidable question. Now we have to answer it. And that matters to man's eternal destiny because it dictates man's eternal destiny, what their response is. But everybody on this globe, I don't care who they are, red, yellow, black, and white, it doesn't matter. I don't care how rich, how poor, I don't care where they work or they don't work. Everybody is going to have to answer this unavoidable question. And here is Jesus with those 12 men. Now he gets the meddling, folks. Don't you just hate that when preachers start doing that? And that's what he did. You know, he, he got the meddling. He looked all 12 of those men eye to eye. Maybe he pointed at them. I don't know. Who do you say that I am? You ever been in a situation like that when somebody says something like that and it gets so quiet you can hear a pin drop on carpet? I don't know. I just think the wind stopped at the mountains. I think everything got so quiet when Jesus said that. And then there was this pause, you know? How they would answer that incredible, unavoidable question would determine the direction of their life. Once again, Jesus didn't ask the disciples who he thought he was or even who they believed he was. He simply said, who do you, same word that you use, lego, that's the verb form, first person in particular. But he used the other word that is in the second person, the you, and he says, who do you? And he emphasizes it, says it twice. Who do you say that I am? And folks, we have to answer that question in one of two ways. He is either Lord or he is not. There's no middle of the ground. There's no gray matter. There's no place where you can just straddle the fence on this one. I know the book of Revelation and the church at Laodicea said God hates fence straddlers. When it comes to this point, you can't straddle the fence. He's either Lord or he's not. He's either the son of the living God or he's a dead God in your life. And so much of this world has brought and said to him that he's dead as far as I'm concerned. I have no cause to have Jesus in my life. They now, the stats continue to increase as upwards of 80 or higher percentage of those just right here in our community within a three-mile ring of this church are lost. The Bible says when you answer this question in Jesus as Lord, that there'll be some things in your life that will be not only obvious, they'll be fact. Because the Bible says the proof of the very fact that Jesus Christ is in your life it says, and Paul said it to the church at Galatia, that there will be fruit, not plural, fruits, but fruit. All those fruits mentioned in Galatians 5 are in one package. That there will be fruit of the Spirit. And the Bible says in Galatians 5, 22 and 23, the fruit of the Spirit is love, agape, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faith, gentleness, self-control. If Jesus Christ is the Son of the living God in your life, then the Word of God says the evidences of such a confession are the fruit of the Spirit of God. 
Folks, it's unavoidable. We have to answer. For the vast majority of you in this house, you have answered that question. You have followed the Lord in believer's baptism, and you are growing in your walk with the Lord in discipleship. But every one of us has got to answer that question in our life. And then in the third place, here's what happened. The place is quiet. All eyes are on Jesus. Just ask the disciples, who do you say that I am? And I think there was a pause. Not because they didn't know. They just wanted to be sure they said it right. Well, Peter, you know him. He, he walked on water. He also denied Christ, or will later. But old Peter, he's always the spokesman of the disciples. But there was something about Peter, folks. I don't know where he was sitting. One day I'll find out. But where are standing in that group of 12? But they were a close-knit group. Peter gets to his feet or speaks up. And the Bible says the way he speaks is a confidence. He's not a wimp. He's not being mealy-mouthed. He stands up, and he says, and he declares, you, once again, the emphasis in the Greek, you, talking about Jesus, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Now, Peter is looking around at all of these carvings of Tupan and all and Baal and all these little G-O-D-S all over the place. And he looks up to Jesus and he says, Jesus, you are the Messiah. You are the Son of the living God, not the dead ones. And that's where the Bible says the water meets the wheel. You and I have got to answer that question in our life. He's either Lord of your life or he's a liar. And you're living a lie without Jesus Christ being the Lord of your life. Matthew knows what the word living means in Greek. His daughter is named Zoe. It's the word for life. This particular word means a life that is God-breathed. God breathed into the nostrils of man the breath of life. And man became, in Genesis, a living image. He is a life-breathed God. He's the living God. All these dead gods are carved very beautifully up on the sides of the mountain cliffs and in their former temples. That's why Jesus brought him to Caesarea Philippi. That's why he didn't just go 10 miles from where he was. That was intentional. He went 25 miles north of Capernaum, at least a day plus travel, and they got alone together in the midst of all this, and that question was asked, and Peter stood up and says, You're the Messiah. You're the Son of the living God. And Peter was simply confessing, I believe you are the true Messiah. You're not a mere man, but you are the Son of God. You are sent by God, and you are sent by God to fulfill all that the prophets have foretold. That was the critical question. Who do men say that I am? What's the word out on the street? Then Jesus focused that question to those men. Who do you say that I am? And then Peter declares, you are the Christ, the Son of God of the living God. Now, what's your response? 
to that question. Folks, as I prepared this message, I, was, I kept hearing in my heart the words of Romans 10, 9, and 10. For if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God had raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart man believes that results in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses Jesus as Lord, resulting in salvation. There was a little fourth grade boy in class, and this little fourth grade boy, I compare him to Peter, because the way he deals with the teacher's question is just like Peter when he stood up to deal with with Jesus and answer that unavoidable question. One day, this little fourth grader named Donnie, the, the teacher asked a question. She said, who is the greatest human being alive in the world today? Well, the responses were all over the place. Celebrity after celebrity. They even referred to Tiger Woods as the best golfer. They referred to some NFL players. They referred even to the Pope because he cares for people and doesn't get paid for it, they said. You know, it was amazing. And then the kids shouted one by one. It was just everyone, celebrity, celebrity. And then Donnie, little Donnie, little fourth grade Donnie stood up. And he said, ma'am, teacher, I think it's Jesus Christ because he loves everybody and is always ready to help them. And the teacher says, now, now Donnie, that answer is okay, but I'm really looking for the greatest living person. And, of course, Jesus lived and died almost 2,000 years ago. Donnie didn't move. He, stood up, he stayed where he was, and he looked that teacher right square in the eye. And you school teachers, this is out of the mouth of babes. He says, oh, no, Mrs. Thompson, that's not true at all. Jesus Christ is alive right now because he's living right here. Folks, he just said what Peter did. He just declared that you are Jesus, the Son of the living God. And when I asked you to come into my life as an 11-year-old boy and made that public right here in this building, you have never left me. You are not going to leave me because you are the Son of the living God and the promises you make are eternal. So as the the famous game show would say, I know they say, what's your final answer? I just want to know what your answer is. Is it Jesus is the son of the living God? Or is it not that he's in you there? My prayer this morning, folks, is that we'd walk out of this house and every one of us would answer that question. Lord Jesus, I can just visualize those men, those 12 with you. I can visualize you looking them right in their eye. And, and Father, that look, that is a look that, yes, goes to the eye, but Lord, it's, it just penetrates the heart. Father, and then Peter. What a confession. The greatest Christian confession and the most simplest ever said, you are the Messiah, you are the anointed one, sent from God, the Son of the living God. Oh, Father.
as we begin a series on Jesus Christ. May we, as those 12 men, put our hearts this morning in check and make sure that we can stand as confidently and as strong as Peter. Say, you are the Christ, Son of the living God. See to it, Father. Thank you for the privilege of preaching your word. Thank you, Father, for the word of your message in my heart. And I realize that I've heard this message a whole lot louder than anybody else in this room. For all of us, including this pastor, Lord, I thank you that for me, you are the Messiah. You are the Son of the living God. So my answer, yes. Yes, Lord. May all of us say the same thing. Thank you in the name of Jesus. Amen. And amen. Will you stand to your feet? Doug's going to lead us. Matthew and Daniel. Austin will be right here down front. Let's make that answer yes. He is Jesus, the Christ, the Son of the living God.